Welcome to Russian History Retold, episode 148, The Crimean War, The End. First off, I'd like to apologize to my regular listeners who keep up with me on a week-to-week basis. I haven't put uh, an episode out for quite a while. And I guess you might say it's been a little bit of a Crimean War fatigue that's set in. Uh, we've gone through this war for quite a long time. Uh, it's one that's really deserving, but it was quite a bit of work, and I wanted to take a little bit of a break, go on a little vacation, and clear my head and finish up the last two episodes. You're going, wait a minute, isn't this the end? Well, it is the end of the Crimean War that we're going to be discussing today. But the war doesn't end for the combatants and for the countries that were involved with the signing of the peace treaty. There was a lot of repercussions that went on afterwards, and next time we're going to go over those repercussions and who really won the war and who really lost the war. But that is for next time. So. Last time, we covered this stalemate at Sevastopol and the appalling conditions the men in the trenches were forced to endure. Today, we'll wrap things up and bring a close to the Crimean War in a way that was very unsatisfying to the English. Since it's been quite a while, let's start by reintroducing the main players. Baron Raglan still leads the British contingent. General Pellissier has replaced Count Robert for the French. Omar Pasha is still head of the Turkish forces, and Menshikov is under pressure from the new Tsar, Alexander II. The Allies now fully understood that Sevastopol was not going to be taken easily, despite the constant bombardment. They decided to revive the plan to attack Kirsch, which greatly excited the British. They launched their attack on May 24, 1855. Much to their surprise, their landing was unopposed after a brief bombardment. What ensued was to prove to be a major embarrassment to the Allies. The troops who were sent into Kirsch looted the town and destroyed buildings, including sacking the museum. But what was worst was the rape of the women and murder of many of the civilians by the Turkish soldiers. Raglan, for his part, was totally outraged and sent in 50 men to patrol the city but it was too late. The damage to the reputation of the Allied armies were now tainted. The Russians, and in particular the Tsar, were furious when news hit St. Petersburg. It also hit Alexander that this was a major blow to their war effort. The supply lines to Sevastopol were now effectively cut. Napoleon was now emboldened to place more pressure on the Allies to concentrate all of their focus on the port town and not worry about anything else. As he put it, quote, I am glad that it was successful, but nevertheless, I can't help regarding as fatal anything which today tends to scatter your forces. The course to follow is easy to indicate. One, defeat the Russian army in order to surround the fortress. Two, the place being surrounded takes Sebastopol. Three, the place taken, evacuate the Crimea and destroy all the fortifications or at most leave the Turks there alone. With a smashing victory at Kirsch, the Allies believed that they could attack the Russians closer to home in the Baltic. If they could take Kronstadt, then St. Petersburg would be ripe for an attack. The Russians, realizing this, began to beef up the defenses. With little time to accomplish a complete fortification, they were very vulnerable. Luckily, the Allies decided to abandon their attack. 
the Russian military sighed in relief. The Allies, though, did attack the Baltic shoreline, destroying a number of fishing villages, many in Finland. Some reporters sent dispatches to London about how brave and tough the battles were, which of course were really bold-faced lies, and many in the British capital knew it. Admiral Sullivan, responding to a report that sailors of the HMS Nile were under fire by 3,000 Russians, said, quote, Well, this celebrated battle consisted, I hear, of two muskets being fired by militiamen on shore, for which fire was opened on villages, houses, church, and hall. Worse, the Royal Navy was making itself look ridiculous to the Russians, who knew only too well the truth of the assertions. Admiral Dundas decided that he had to give the Russians a strong message instead of raiding defenseless fish, fishing villages. So he focused on Sveborg and on August 9th started bombarding the fortress town. Most of the town, once a Swedish possession, was destroyed by over 1,100 towns, tons of artillery shells. But as many noted, it did absolutely nothing in helping to end the war. It was a total waste of time and money. Focus was now put back on capturing Sevastopol, so on June 6, 1855, the guns of the Allies began to fire upon the fortifications. This time, plans were made by Pellissier and Raglan to use infantry in a concentrated attack on the Mamelon-Vert defensive position by the French and the quarries by the British. After fierce fighting, the Allies accomplished their goals and took the advanced fortifications from the Russians. But the cost was tremendous. The French suffered 5,443 casualties and the British 671. Napoleon was furious as he wanted the Russian troops to the north of the town dealt with first and Pellissier instead sacrificed his troops in attacking the fortified city. As his terse message read, quote, I wished before sending congratulations on the brilliant success to learn how great the losses were. I am informed of the figure by St. Petersburg. I admire the courage of the troops, but I would observe to you that a battle fought to decide the entire fate of the Crimea would not have cost you more. I persist then in the order which I had the Minister of War give you to make all your efforts to enter resolutely into the field campaign. Pellissier told Napoleon that if he wasn't given the free hand to do things his way, he would resign. It was risky, but he had to do it or lose respect to the Allies. When his resignation was not accepted, he went back to Raglan to plan their next assault on the Russian defenses. They set their sights on the Malakoff redoubt. On June 17th, the guns began to pound the Russians. The fire was so fierce that even Todleben thought that the end was near as his men were having a hard time reinforcing the walls. Pellissier and Raglan believed that this could be the beginning of the end. What ensued was another mass slaughter. In a very curious move, at 3 a.m., the French commander ordered his men to attack, even though there was no hole in the walls of the Malakoff, and the sky was clear and a bright moon lightened up the field. As Trevor Royal puts it in his book on the Crimean War, quote, It was an appalling sight. The lines in front of the Malakoff became a killing ground as the French infantrymen walked into a hail of bullets and ball. Rudimentary landmines exploded beneath their feet, 
all shrapnel and grape shot thinned their ranks. Still, they stumbled on. Some managed to engage the enemy with the bayonet. Others fell like ninepins before the weight of the artillery fire. Smoke enveloped the battlefield, adding to the confusion, and wounded men screamed out for mercy from God or help from their mothers, anything to gain release from the hell in which they found themselves. This was the face of battle which few had expected to encounter only an hour or two beforehand. Now, Raglan saw this and decided against better judgment to send his men to help the French out. The British were to feel the same withering rain of bullets. It was a total rout. Raglan, seeing this, ordered his artillery to fire upon the Russians to give his men and the French troops a way to retreat. At dawn, the Allies began to count the casualties. The French lost 3,500 and the British 1,500. Far too high for such an unsuccessful attack. Raglan became a broken man, but a much more devastating attack was to kill him in a few weeks' time. A bout of dysentery. By June 26th, he was dead. The news shocked the British camp. After his death, unable to defend himself, Raglan's reputation took a beating. Some of the criticisms were valid, but many others were not. He was a soldier's general and was as brave a man as any. Sadly, there were never any monuments erected in his honor. And after Raglan's death, there was a major shakeup in the ranks of the leadership of the British Army in the Crimea. Numerous field commanders were recalled with new, younger, and more importantly, fresher men. Major General Sir James Simpson was appointed to replace Raglan. Simpson was a truly reluctant military leader, and he continually complained about his position. After one of his depressing letters to the Secretary of War, Panmure, the response was terse, quote, If you feel unable to bear the weight of responsibility, which I am aware is not small, I advise you to give it up, and everyone will give you credit and on your retirement a still further mark of the Queen's favor may be conferred. But I strongly recommend you do not hesitate in the matter. Either buckle up your reins vigorously for the work, or at once claim the consideration which your long and honorable services entitle you to receive. I have written you plainly as a friend, and you will, I know, accept what I write as such. The men of the Allied forces were by now getting more and more depressed. Despite the continual bombardment of the walls of Sevastopol, they didn't see that it was having any effects. What they didn't know is that Todleben was injured and no longer able to direct the defense of Sevastopol. Within the walls of the fortress city, the men were in deep despair. How much longer did they need to endure the constant battering? Simpson, for his part, could no longer bear the command and requested yet again to be relieved. Panmure debated who to choose and eventually selected Major General Sir William Codrington, kind of a simple-minded and very short-sighted military man. In Russia, the war was causing great hardships on the economy because of the embargo. Cotton from America was no longer flowing into the new industries popping up all over Russia, and particularly around Moscow. The government was close to financial collapse. Because of this, St. Petersburg began to pressure the leader of the Russian Crimean troops, 
Michael Gorchakov to go on the offensive and dislodge the French and Sardinians choking off the city. Gorchakov, he, he knew that this was wrong, but he had no other choice. Tsar Alexander II telegraphed his general, quote, Your daily losses inside Sevastopol emphasize what I've told you many times before in my letter, the necessity to do something to bring this frightful massacre to a close. A plan to attack the Allied line outside the city was concocted, but unknown to the Russians. Their plans were found out and told to the leaders of the British military. When the attack began, the Russians made headway early on. But due to low cloud cover, communications with the troops were as difficult and slow. Within hours, the Russians were routed. The French rifles, vastly superior to their enemies, cut down men with ease. By the end of the battle, over 2,200 Russian men were dead, with 1,700 missing and over 4,000 wounded. The Allies suffered 2,000 casualties. Napoleon was right. The Russian army outside of Sevastopol had to be defeated first. But still, the French and the British, emboldened by this victory, decided to increase the intensity of the bombardment on Sevastopol. Gorchakov knew the end was near and asked that the city be abandoned, but Tsar Alexander refused to allow any retreat. Because of this decision, thousands of men were to die. Their blood was on the Russian ruler's hands. The assault on the redoubts of Sevastopol was brutal, but eventually the Allies caused the Russians to retreat into the heavily fortified northern part of the town. Many of the Russians wounded were left behind for the British to find. Arthur Henry Taylor wrote, quote, Never saw I such a scene of misery. Dead, dying, and wounded lay without attendance, shrieking and calling for drink, squalid, starving, dirty, and miserable in the extreme. None of the doctors, shame on them, remained behind with them. I gave my brandy and water to them, though I wanted in badly myself, as far as it went, and reported their state to headquarters. So now we have the Allies entrenched in the northern part of Sevastopol and the Russians in the heavily fortified south. Here we begin a stalemate that would last the winter. Now I want to turn to two battles that occurred between the Russians and the Allied forces away from the port city, the fighting at Kars and Erezrum. The Russians decided to try to pry away Turkish troops from Sevastopol by attacking Ottoman strongholds at Kars and Erzurum. These towns were in disputed territories in the Caucasus. The main objective was the port city of Trebizond. Unfortunately, the local militia was made aware of the intentions of their enemies, and forces were sent there, and the fortresses surrounding the town were improved. This made the Russians turn themselves toward secondary targets. Erzurum was very well defended, and when the Russians got there, they quickly realized that they did not bring enough men to successfully besiege the city. So after a brief fight, they headed towards cars. They first met at the Battle of Kurik Deer, which turned out to be a major debacle for the Ottoman forces. A reporter for the Times told what he saw, quote, With a vivid impression of the whole engagement, from the first cannon shot to the last straggling discharge of musketry, I can use no language too strong to express my misapprobation of nearly four-fifths of the Turkish officers present. And accounting for the defeat of an armory 
army numbering nearly 40,000 men of all arms by a force of less than half that number, it is not sufficient to say that the management of the whole battle on the side of the Turks was a series of blunders from first to last. Strategical errors might have protracted, protracted the engagement and added to the cost of a victory, but downright cowardice alone, which no generalship could have reduced, gave the day to the Russians. The Turks were now forced to retreat into the fortress of Kars, where they were eventually worn out. By this time, the Ottoman forces were led by a British general, William Fenwick Williams, sent by London to help them out. But it was too little, too late, and by the end of October, with provisions running low, Williams decided to offer his men surrender to Russian General Muraviev. Muraviev greeted his vanquished opponent by saying, quote, General Williams, you have made yourself a name in history, and posterity will stand amazed at the endurance, the courage, and the discipline which the siege has called forth in the remains of an army. Let us arrange a capitulation that will satisfy the demands of war without outraging humanity. While the fall of Kars was of minor importance to the Allied war effort, it was to play an important role in peace negotiations the following year. Before the winter was to set in, the Allies began to push the Russians back from their positions near Sevastopol. But there was one battle, the final major one, that would show the Russians that they were in an unwinnable position, and that was the assault on the once thought to be impregnable fortress of Kinburn at the confluence of the rivers Bug and Dnieper. Using battleships, gunships, and infantry, led by French General Bazain on October 16, 1855, the Russians were defeated quickly, dealing a blow to their morale. The Allies began to dig in for the expected harsh Crimean winter, but this time they were far better supplied and prepared to deal with the cold and inclement weather. They were also in a much more positive mood than the previous year. But that was to change rapidly as men began to fall due to typhus and cholera. It is estimated that between 25,000 to 40,000 men died from January to March of 1856, far more than had died in battle. The French medical staff, which had done so well in the past, was by now completely overwhelmed. It was this humanitarian disaster and pressure from all sides that made the Allies realize that a negotiated peace had to be the end result of the conflict in the Crimea. Again, we have Austrian Count Buol making the overtures. The four points we talked about in an earlier podcast was brought back, but this time the Allies had a much stronger hand. Yet again, the French and Austrians pushed for the peace plan, with the British yet again trying to disrupt it. But now, the people back home in London were putting pressure on their government to end the hostilities. They expanded the peace treaty to include five total points, but one sticking point was the British demand that the Sea of Azov be cleared of Russian influence as well. This was something that all parties knew would end any peaceful negotiations. Austria sent the proposal to the capitals and to St. Petersburg. They added the condition that if they didn't accept, that they would face their army as well, and they had until January 18th to agree. The Tsar was now in a no-win situation. The economy of Russia was in trouble. Their army was in tatters, and they faced the now very real possibility that Austria was going to join the war effort. Not only that, 
but Prussia decided that they would be on the side of the Austrians should the Russians reject the proposal. On January 1, 1856, Tsar Alexander called in his most trusted advisors for a meeting. To a man, except Count Bludov, called for an acceptance of the treaty, but on the condition that the fifth point be rejected. This was conveyed to Austria, who almost immediately replied that, No, you have no choice but to accept all points or else. But there were secret negotiations going on, which led the Russians to believe that the French, the senior partner in the war effort, would help them get rid of that sticking point once they got to the negotiating table. With a heavy heart and really no other option, Alexander II accepted the five points and agreed to send his ambassadors to Paris. He had to go through with it, as there was real concern that if the war continued and they lost, they could lose their influence over Poland, Finland, and even Ukraine, as there had been an awakening of Ukrainian and Cossack national pride. Alexander also rightfully feared a revolution with his own country that could bring down the Romanov dynasty. That, of course, as we all know, took on another, took another global conflict, World War I, to take them down. The Treaty of Paris, signed on March 30, 1856, made the Black Sea neutral territory, closing it to all warships and prohibiting Russian fortifications and the presence of armaments on its shores. The treaty marked a severe setback to Russian influence in the region. While it greatly diminished the Russian hegemony in the area, and they lost almost all their national luster that they had gained after the Napoleonic War, this was not as bad as it could have been. Within 15 years, they reversed many of their losses after yet another war with the Ottoman Empire. Join me next week as I look at the aftermath of the Crimean War and what it meant to the future of all the belligerents and players involved. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Uh, don't forget to visit my blog site at www.russianrulershistory.com. And while you're there, if you can, donate to the podcast. And I want to thank uh, listener James for his generous donation this past week. It really does help. Uh, it cost quite a bit to keep this podcast up and running, you know, from episode one through this one, uh, with all the bandwidth it takes. So really appreciate it if you can. Additionally, don't forget to stop by Facebook and join us at Russian Rulers History. So now, as always, Das Vidanya Ispasiba Bolshoya.